Hi, Tony. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Tony Sargent, I have known you for five years since I started working at Buckinghamshire Archives, but you've been known around this parish for a lot longer. Uh, do you want to just introduce yourself briefly? Yes, currently I'm the Secretary of Bucks Family History Society and outside Bucks Family History Society and their work, I also do my own research, looking at various bits and pieces, mainly centred on Buckinghamshire. The reason for mainly centering on Buckinghamshire is that I know I can't do the whole lot and one has to limit oneself somewhere. Uh, very sensible, I think. Coming out of Black History Month last year, we at Bucks Archives wanted to do better. Uh, we talk about the histories uh, of black people in Buckinghamshire. And to that end, we developed a project called the Black History Research Group, which started off in July this year, in which we've been working with a number of people interested in black history to try and steer some research to find, to discover the lives of ordinary black people living or passing through Buckinghamshire. And we, the group decided to focus on pre-Windrush, so pre-1948 stories as well. When we were formulating this project, I knocked on your metaphorical door because I know from many conversations in the search room with you that you have a bit of a, a list going where you have picked up leads of potential black people throughout the history of Buckinghamshire. And I thought you might be a useful person to bring into the project. So to that end, do you want to talk about how over the years you've gathered some of these leads and where you found them? I think some of the interest for me started in a different place, and that is with my own family history. There are a couple of photographs, which I think you've seen, of my grandfather selling aircraft to Pakistan people. So that was after 1948, effectively, because that's when separation would have happened in India. And there's some 1960s pictures as well, which are not in Buckinghamshire taken, where he's selling aircraft to the Indians, which is what the Hawker Sidleys did at the time. That triggered things off in that respect. And also past working in London and knowing my next door neighbour was an Indian when I was growing up. So this is where a lot of my interest in this sort of thing starts. And out of my work with Buck's Family History Society, we end up doing a lot of records and transcription work, which meant there's a lot of information around. And I'm lucky enough to have the technology to look for particular items. And I've done it looking for soldiers during the Civil War. I've looked at plague deaths within Buckinghamshire as well. And that was just another category to search for in looking for these keywords that indicate that someone is not of a local origin and therefore may be of interest to the research group. We should say that some of these, these words that you'd be searching for are, by today's standards, incredibly offensive. But at the time, it was the, the standard vocabulary for describing people who were different. Sometimes the term foreign or foreigners, which is used, uh, certainly in some of the very early High Wycombe record, actually means just outside the borough or outside the parish. So it's a different mindset as well as the different use of the language. 
Yes, I quite agree. We have to be sensible and cautious about in modern day terms. But I think it still makes a tool that archivists and researchers use with care to mm. ensure they're mining this heap of information to get the best out of it. Definitely. And I should add that even the word black, there's often question marks in how people used that, didn't always denote someone from an African-Caribbean origin. What sorts of sources were you mining? Parish registers are the obvious one, the registers of baptisms, uh, marriages and burials. Are there any others that you've, you've trawled through? I was able to get at the 1851 census, just looking for pure place of birth information out of it. And that is the other major source. These little snippets, which are probably only a line long or something like that, lead to jumping off points. And therefore, we can say from that jumping off point, look at other sources to say what's happening or provide it with context. Because there's a good chance we'll never find another piece of information directly about that person. But we can describe the world they're living in and therefore not only talk about the history of that single person, but maybe understand a little bit more about what's happening in Buckinghamshire at the time. Were you surprised at the date of the earliest person that you found? Yes, because I know Buckinghamshire registers are not really that good back in the 1570s. Should we we give them a name? Who was the, the, the earliest person that you've discovered that you can say with confidence was likely to have an African origin? Samson is his name. Ethrops has been given him as a surname, but the word itself is actually quite an interesting meaning. If we look at something like the, the Oxford Dictionary on Historic Principles, it is quoted in there as being first coined by a bloke called William Shakespeare in 1600. And we've got this word being used 30 years before its entry. So we know roughly they're going to have roughly the same meaning between those two, two dates. And it basically means an African or black, usually from Ethiopia. That pins him down nicely. But we need to understand about why he's there. And I don't think I've quite grasped it. I've given some ideas on a bit I've written up. It's just a little bit tantalising in knowing a bit about what else is happening. The entry itself stands out as being very strange in its own right. It is the only baptism on the Buckinghamshire registers that has sponsors until you reach 1855, which means there is something special about this person. They wanted to record it as an entry of his baptism and know there's three witnesses about who were there at the time and therefore could put their hand up and say, yes, we know this gent. But he was 14. There was also a school in Buckingham by that time, a free school, which later became the Latin school. But I don't think he went to it because if he was at the Latin school, Education at that time was done through people who had been to Oxford and were usually members of the clergy. And if he was going to a school before the age of 14, he would have been baptised much earlier. But 14 is also important in the view that it's the time that if you're going to get a five-year apprenticeship and have that finished by the time you've reached age majority of 21, 14 is the time it will start, or seven-year apprenticeships even. So it's difficult to imagine why he was being baptised for a seven-year apprenticeship through to the age of 21. But why was he getting an apprenticeship? And then we fall back into the usual system. 
within England at the time of needing to move somebody out of the parish so they're not a burden long-term wise. It becomes a balancing act about where the actual truth lies. We might have a, a span of idea of what it may be, but we're not going to be able to nail it down without a bit more information. The only other thing we know about this entry is we, we know that one of the witnesses was the vicar of Buckingham. The other two people, we don't know anything about them either. They don't appear in the record anywhere else. And 1571 also was a difficult time as far as the English religion was concerned. Queen Elizabeth was still passing laws about needing to follow the right level of command within church doctrine. There's a thing called the 39 Articles that came along in 1563. And the Subscription Act in 1571, which is the date of the baptism, says it would be unlawful for the clergy not to, to subscribe to those articles. So there's lots of pressure on getting the church to conform because of the period of time under Mary of trying to get them back away from the, the Catholic faith that she was dragging them back into. So there was a pressure to baptise everyone? I think there was a system of wanting to make sure everybody subscribed, because even though it's much later as a record... So by extrapolation, do you think that Samson being christened was almost out of fear from whatever uh, uh, system of faith that he might have come from? I think christening would have made his life easier in that respect because he would have a bit of paper or password that said, this guy's been christened. Interesting, because that presence was probably accepted as long as he towed the line and tried to fit in the, the, the state religion of the day. Yes, but it also applies in the respect that he would have had to have had an employment of some description. Yeah. And therefore, being a servant to operate in some households and not cause problems for that household, he would have to be christened. The elephant in the room is why was there an African boy who has limited agency of his own how on earth did he get from Africa to Buckingham that's the big 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 don't know and I haven't attempted to it because I can't see an easy route 1571 the temples hadn't even got as far as stone so it's finding the right documentary evidence to find a household with the ability to move overseas to find somebody to employ we know this in Radnich, there's a servant who works for Mrs. Woodfine, and I can't remember the date, 1730s, somewhere about there. And her links to everything was her husband was a sea captain in about 1690s. That may need more work to actually find out how he was getting overseas and the like and travelling, because we're looking at the time of the big expansion of international development, inverted commas. England was trying to get itself back onto the world stage, either through trading or piracy. I don't think it mattered which way they were attempting it. And of course, we're thinking back to Queen Elizabeth's time, 1571. Other links thinking about Drake bringing back the potato and tobacco in, into this country. How are some people moving about? Mm. But this boy, if he was from Ethiopia, is on the Egyptian side of Africa rather than the West Coast, a more obvious slave route. Yes, it's a lot of unknowns left there. 
the 1570s, it's a period before systematic slave trade, uh, which doesn't mean that people came with their own will. We know there's more slave-related links when we start looking at the Herberts in former. Mm. That's an interesting case in the view that we know these four people got baptised in Fulmer in the 1730s, but we don't know much more else about them. We do know they lived around the area for a time because they end up back in Fulmer in the burial grounds. Have we got names for them if, we've, if we know that they were baptised? We've got their first names, certainly. We've got Pharaoh, John, who was only five, Pharaoh was 19, Amy, who was 25, and Mary, who was an infant child. Now, having an infant child is probably what triggered the baptisms, but they decided, like all good incumbents, to do a job lot. And the entries have the line saying, these four were Negroes bought from the West Indies by Mr Herbert, once a domestic of the late Duke of Portland, and were baptised by Mr Saleb Colton, Curate of Chaffin St Giles. So there's a few interesting bits and pieces in there. The fact that they weren't baptised by the incumbent of Fulmer and the fact that they were slaves or servants owned by someone who himself was a servant. So we know why the name Herbert's been attached to these people because that's the name of their owner. Even just trying to track down anything about Mr Herbert's it's difficult because of the thinness of record at the time. It's much easier to sort out the Duke of Portland for we understand why they use Fulmer, because the Duke of Portland owns Fulmer Manor, as well as the manor which covers uh, Bullstrode Park. Bullstrode Park has its own dark history. It was originally built for Judge Jeffreys. One of his infamous acts was sending people from the Monmouth Rebellion out to uh, the West Indies as slaves when they all got prosecuted. Judge Jeffries fell from grace and the Duke of Portland came along and it all gets tied together with the change of William of Orange coming into this country because Duke of Portland is actually Dutch and this is one thing I like is the link between what's happening on the national stage and what's happening within Buckinghamshire. It's these sorts of things mean that these individuals get left behind in various places, like these four who end up being baptised in former. Do we know anything about Herbert going to Africa, whereabouts he might have gone to? Oh, he brought them back from Jamaica. Oh, sorry. From the West Indies, sorry. Yeah. And the reason why we can tie it to Jamaica in particular is that the Duke of Portland himself was the governor of Jamaica. So that's why Herbert was there. And Herbert's marriage is there. St Catherine's, I think, in Jamaica. Duke of Portland actually died it there in 1724-ish, somewhere about there, and his body was brought back to Westminster. He only got the job because he lost all his money in the South Sea bubble. He needed to get a job with and to gather being governor of Jamaica was quite lucrative. I suppose at the time, Jamaica and the West Indies were a frontier for the empire. It's only in about 1690s that Britain was able to get its hands on Jamaica. The big plantations started up in the 1750s, the sugar plantations. Landowners there found it more lucrative. So Pharaoh and Amy and the, the two others ended up 
traveling well, from Jamaica to Buckinghamshire. And we found out that John Herbert wrote a letter which is in the Nottingham University archives and the address of that was the lodge at Bullstrode. So that's likely where they lived. Well that's where I pinned down where John Herbert lived. In fact one thing I can say about these four people there's no promise any of them are related to each other anyway. There's a good chance that Mary the infant child was a daughter of, of Amy but there's nothing else written down to say what the links are between the others. It's almost a shorthand calling them siblings or something like that it just it's just easier isn't it to uh, yeah. it's yeah. giving them a story but it's not necessarily the right story we pinned down some deaths which tie things together to little bits and we had trouble tracking down a bit of information about john herbert the master but in the one of the histories of buckinghamshire there's the rec- record of his gravestone, which is supposed to be in, in former church. But when I went to see it, I wasn't able to see it because so all the floors covered up. But it says from the transcription, here lies the body of Mary Herbert, ye wife of John Herbert, Esquire, who departed this life December 25th, 1732, aged 32 years. Here lies the body of William, her child, aged 14 days, the best of friends and the best wife. And underneath, also the body of John Herbert, who died 22nd of April, 1736, aged four months, and Anne Bathasheba, sorry, Bathasheba, August 25th, 1741, aged three years, child of John and Anne Herbert. So he went on to be remarried. He's not there, but it does say that the other burials we've got in the burial register are his servants. So it's likely that Pharaoh and Amy and Mary and, and the infant were buried, died and were buried in Fulmer, do you think? Amy was buried in 1762, Mary 1750, Pharaoh 1747. But there's nothing outside the registers. Putting things down is quite difficult, mainly due to the lack of record. What I find frustrating about this story is how inseparable the story of the, the slaves slash servants of John Herbert are from his own story. To get to them, we, we have to always consider him, and he's much more visible in the records than they are. I wanted to get on to Henry Pompey, the uh, cavalryman. This story has uh, really captured my imagination. And also because it's about Twyford, a really tiny place on the northwest border of Bucks, which is currently being a bit HS2'd. So tell us about Henry Pompey. Henry Pompey. Now, I know you've had several visits to, uh, to our search room where you have been trying to track down the elusive Mr Pompey in all sorts of different records. So... Well, it started before I even got to the search room. We know Henry Pompey, buried 16th of April, 1713. There's a good chance he died on the 15th because they didn't leave bodies around for long in those days. The entry says, Henry Pompey, a blackamore trumpeter in the Lord Peterborough Regiment of Horse. This is at the time when some of the names we hear today about regiments had not been fully formed. They were named after their leading officers. His occupation is given within the regiment. He's a trumpeter. And anybody could Google a Blackamore or trumpeter in regiments. And you will find a picture in the Royal Palace's archives showing 
a gentleman on a horse in full regalia with his trumpet. And that was painted about 1740 or so, somewhere about there. Or maybe so a little bit later. And we think about what trumpeters were used for, especially on the battlefield, for communication mm. and message carrying and that sort of thing. And there's all entries floating around about how trumpeters were allowed to cross lines during uh, conflicts to get messages to the opposing generals and that sort of thing. So it's quite a risky position, really, isn't it? And has its responsibilities as well, which may help us explain why he was in Aylesbury in the April of that year. And I was looking at the transcripts for Buck's Quarter Sessions, and in there is a notice to say compensation was paid to the constables of Twyford for the cost of transporting baggage for a regiment of horse. And that was paid in, and the transportation happened in May of that year. So out of the blue, things started to click together. And the legislation says that the regiment will pay the constables 12 pence for transportation of the baggage over that sort of distance. But the problem is, it's actually half the actual rated costs. So the constables were claiming back off for the quarter sessions. And the quarter sessions of a loyal county were just having to swallow the extra charge. So we know that money was paid for the shifting of baggage from Twyford. Well, they were actually at Buckingham, I think, the way it's worded, to move them to Aylesbury. So this guy, because he was a trumpeter, he would maybe be sent on to organise things because the troop would be billeted and billets will have to be arranged. Having your messenger come forward and say to the constables of Aylesbury, you need to find accommodation for us. And at the time, that was usually in the local pub. The system worked in the end. It created a paper trail. We can see Henry Pompey because of his regimental expenses claim. That and the burial. Without these things, we wouldn't have known that he had passed through the county. Is that right? How he got there is much more explainable because we've now got this regimental movement order, this troop going through. This was at the time of just after Utrecht, the peace treaty was signed and the Spanish War succession had finished. And as a sideline for this, I did some work looking at a recruiting system that was in operation at the time. The legal jargon was is that anybody who was without a means of employment and was not able to vote was liable to be rounded up and put in the army. And of course, one of the places you look for people who can't be employed is in the local jail. What I find interesting is today we wouldn't expect army manoeuvres around the countryside and soldiers being put up in the local pub. Was there any reason that this troop were particularly visible and moving through Aylesbury and Buckinghamshire? I don't think it was particularly visible. You'll see there's a lot more of movements in the 1730s of various regiments. We know the regiments must have been around to receive these people who were coming out of the system of being rounded up by the constables and coming out of the jails. Was it possible that they had, in a previous movement somewhere else in the country, that's how they had stumbled across Henry Pompey and absorbed him into their number? I'm not sure because the regiment of horse Lord Peterborough's one, he was very good military-wise. And the regiment of horse went on to be part of the Blue, now part of the Blues and Royals. Mm. It's got that lineage of history all the way through. 
The other thing to bear in mind is that officers would be paying their own way as far as a lot of getting themselves a horse, a uniform, and that sort of thing. So they would be wanting to pick people who were good at their job in that respect. So I think there's a certain amount of quality about Henry we shouldn't ignore because he's actually in a regiment of horse. Mm. These other people, the prisoners, were going into the foot soldiers. But yeah, I mean, he's in a regiment of horse, so he could ride competently. And well, he's a that... trumpeter as well, so it suggests some element of training and skill. Would he have been free, though? Is he someone who can buy his own horse, pay I'm his not, own way? I'm not saying he's a man of means. I don't think it's that far. Mm. I think he would have had financial support from the system to say, this is a good man, we need to keep him employed because he's doing a good job sort of thing. He would have earned a certain amount of respect to continue in his position. Uh, the other thing that struck me about his name is Pompey. Where did that come from? Was that the one he started off with? Or is that where we landed when he came into the country? Yeah, it could be Portsmouth. We don't know the answer, and therefore I hope it's a thing we cannot exclude. I, I like him as a counterpart to Samson and then the former quartet of servants because Pompey just seems to have a lot more agency. Yes, yes. Even if it, he, he's he's got a career, he might not necessarily have chosen his career, but he's he's got a, a level of independence yeah. within his regiment, and that's so often not the story with. I should point out at this point that it was important to the, the Black History Research Group that we not dwell on stories of slavery too much connected to the county. There are plenty. We're awash with wealthy families and estates which were built on the money derived from the West Indies. And that's something that we do have records that speak to that show that. But that was something that the research group were not interested in, in following up so much. It was more the, the stories of black people living in Buckinghamshire or passing through Buckinghamshire. And that's why I, all, of, all three of these stories, these histories, really, they bring it, it's, they bring it home. They, they show that black history happened here in Buckinghamshire. Yes, and I quite like that because of Samson being the earliest in that respect. I know it's it's slightly outside of the parameters of this the project and, and what we're recording today, but do tell us a little bit about the, the Dilip Singhs. Katharina Hilda Dilip Singh died in 1943 in a place called Hillsden in Tyler's Green. The house was actually called Coal Hatch and it got renamed very close to her death. Hilda and Hilden, I think, links the two together in that respect as a memorial to, to Catherine. She was the daughter of the Maharaja of Jaipur. He and his father were ousted by the East India Company and brought to England. He tried to return to India to, but he was paid by the East India Company, a pension of about £50,000 a year. Some serious money. Quite a lot of money, that. Online, there are Queen Victoria's journals, and the names appear on in there. The children get presented to Queen Victoria as years go by, and they get looked after because of the Maharaja tried to get back in, to his homeland to lead a rebellion. That's what he did. He died in Paris in the end. 1931, Catherine is noted as being on the electoral roll for one of the Grace and Favour apartments at uh, Hampton Court. 
So people actually complain about why all these people in grace and favour departments for keeping the royalty happy. No, no, it's being used to keep these people quiet. Mm. That's actually being useful. A very delicate kind of diplomacy, really, isn't it? Yes, yes. You're prisoners in this country. Well, not quite prisoners in this country, but your travel may be restricted. But she ends up supporting the suffragist system in London. And all these things go around in a big, big circle of that. Not only was the son who, who had died, but also the daughters were fighting against the system in whichever form. But there's lots of threads going on in their family. And so Catherine ends up living in, uh, Catherine Duripsing, living quite close to Windsor, I suppose, down in the, the very south of the county. Yes. The other thing we know about the south of the county in that respect, and we see it in the case you looked at last year, was the uh, two doctors living in Penn. Yes, yes. Mm. Uh, Wendy, oh no, hang on, hang on, Flora Murray and uh, uh, Garrett Anderson. Yes. Garrett Anderson's first name. But anyway, Louisa, Flora Murray and Louisa Garrett Anderson. And the parallels are, and we can see it in lots of other people, Mm. is that South Bucks forms a nice bolt hole for people getting out of London. Half an hour on the train, and have your coach or cart waiting for you to take you up the hill or wherever. What more do you need? You're back in the countryside. I did it life. No aircraft flying over the top of you at that time. So great place to live. Now everyone dashes down to Gloucestershire. But do you think then for people who don't quite fit society, that it might have been heading west along the uh, sort of heading along the Thames, heading west, might have been a bit of a, as you say, a bolt hole and somewhere where there might not be as much animosity? No, I think it's more there's room to breathe. There's an article on the Tyler's Green Church website. At the beginning of the Second World War, there appears to be German servants living with Catherine. Mm, Good, because she's got this affinity to Germany through her, her late governess. Yes, yes, but they got out just in time in that respect. A worry from the local population, there's Germans in their midst. But it's not until you start thinking about what big houses were being used for in Buckinghamshire at the time. The police may be interested. Of course, you've got Hewenden and you've got uh, Bomber Command in Wickham. And then you've got Danesfield as well, all being used for very secret purposes. But in 1943, they wanted a prison war camp for military officers because the one in North London was doing so well, it's getting so much information. So Wilton Park started. And the other thing comes out of it all, one of these people on the 1939 register has put down his occupation as a physicist. So I don't know what happened. I haven't done enough work to find out what happened to these people. So it's, it's a lot more interesting leads following there. Yeah, and talking about interesting leads, I imagine we've only really scratched the surface so far following up some of these leads of yours. Have you got many more leads, Black Lives? I'm at the stage of wanting to settle down and go through the lists I created. We know that there's somebody who died on his way to Abingdon. Now, that may be just a pure off-the-system job in the respect he may have been on the tramp 
and he was going to happen to jail for gold for a particular reason. But the context is Abingdon was actually in Berkshire at the time. We need to change our thoughts about the process. And this is why, why I've written these little bits about what's going on around them, thinking back to Samson and, and that story. Well, exactly. The records are, are pretty silent. The records do not say why Samson was here. So we have to turn to the context and what was going on and try and infer, I suppose. And I think you've done a fantastic job so far. Thank you so much for uh, bringing to life Samson and uh, Pharaoh, Amy and John and Mary Herbert and also Henry Pompey riding his horse around North Buckinghamshire. These are all black lives that we didn't really know about until your research got us got us thinking this year. So thank you very much. If people want to find out more about Buck's Family History Society, they just Google it. Yes, the website still working online. We are always interested in people who are looking to research their families. Hopefully we're getting people to continue to expand away from just looking at the vital records and look at understanding the context of their families. And it's why we hope to point people in the right direction of finding the right archive to supply information, of course. It's not all on ancestry, is it? Oh, thank you <laughs> not. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so much. See you later, Tony. Bye. Thank you for listening. My name's Catherine Gwynne, and this has been a podcast for the Buckinghamshire History Festival 2021. You can find more podcasts on our website, And you can connect with us online on Twitter and on Facebook, where we are at HistFestBucks. Bye-bye.